Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to the Taking a Walk podcast, hosted by Buzz Knight. You can keep up with Taking a Walk if you follow us at takingawalk.com, Apple Podcasts, the Podcast Playground, or wherever you get your podcasts. On previous Taking a Walk episodes, Buzz has talked with authors who dig deep into music history stories. These have included David Leaf, who wrote about the genius of Brian Wilson, and Joel Selvin, who wrote about legendary red rocker Sammy Hagar. On this episode, Buzz welcomes author Scott Shea, talking about his new book, All the Leaves Are Brown, about the twisted world of the band The Mamas and the Papas. Join Buzz Knight as he hosts Scott Shea next on Taking a Walk. Hi, Scott. Nice to be with you, albeit uh, on a virtual edition of Taking a Walk. Good deal. So how could one band that was so immensely talented and successful been so dramatically screwed up in so many other ways? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think uh, just humanity plays a part in that. So, you know, there was uh, the old sex, drugs, and rock and roll idiom, right? And uh, these uh, these four really kind of took it to the hilt. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I say this a lot, and I really, I, I hate to just kind of, uh, it sounds like I'm bashing the group, but I'm really not. It's just I, between, the, you know, the dysfunction uh, between the members, uh, at, you know, following the re- revelation of Denny's uh, fling with Michelle, uh, and it's really kind of resting on their laurels. Uh, you know, the, the, the all four of them have been members of uh, various folk groups and had toured the country and, you know, on buses and stayed in cheap motels 
and wore the same outfits days on end, and that's a lot of hard work. And I think when they got to that the, that level that the mamas and the papas was at, uh, um, they really kind of. Uh, they kind of got a little lazy, you know, they didn't, uh, they only wanted to tour, uh, on weekends and, in uh, warm climates, you know, and they canceled a lot of shows and, um, you know, that's not a recipe for staying together very long. You know, the Beatles, the Stones, the Birds, any group, the Bob Dylan, any group that really is a 60s legend, they put the hard work in. They they went out and met the people. Um, and, uh, you know, being on the road insp- inspired their songwriting and uh, gave us uh, some really great stuff. And uh, unfortunately, the Mamas and the Papas didn't really do that. Who was whispering in their ear that could have been a good influence? Well, Lou Adler, for sure, <clears throat> you know, and I know, you know, the record label, uh, they really wanted them out on the road. It wasn't, uh, you know, something they, they weren't, uh, at all enamored with, uh, with their approach and with the dysfunction and the, you know, they, and they had to kind of tread lightly because there was, they, they were aware of the relationship dysfunction within the group. And, you know, you wanted to hear their walk in the line of trying to get them out to promote it, but not getting them to, to, to not break up at the same time, you know? So, um, but the, definitely Lou Adler was, uh, was a force that really helped them and got them uh, back on their feet somewhat. But he obviously was uh, doing other things, so he couldn't spend full time really uh, managing the dysfunction. Yeah, you know, not long after they signed with Dunhill, uh, you know, he sold it to uh, ABC and uh, walked away with a cool million in his pocket. He and his four, I think he had four or five partners, uh, mostly we were silent partners, um, and uh, so even after not long after they had signed his his influence could only carry so far i mean dunhill for sure kept lou on to be their manager and the producer um and but you know he he could only go so far as as with what the label was doing so but uh you know i know i know he tried and i know he he loved john and they were close friends and in the studio they were a dynamic duo you know um but uh, as far as getting John on the road and saying, hey, man, we got to put the work in, he didn't do too well there. So let's go through each band member because you paint a tremendous picture in the book uh, inside and out of, of each of them. So I'd like to hear your take and go through the lineup. First, uh, John Phillips, uh, talk about what a complex figure he was. Well, he has maybe the most complex personal life out of all of them, and that's really saying something, <laughs> you know. Um, and and I'm, I'm not even talking about with which came later, you know, the, the allegations from his daughter Mackenzie. Uh, but even back in those days, you know, he was uh, he was into drugs. Um, you know, in the in the late '70s, he got busted for being a drug dealer. Uh, but that even that behavior had gone on uh, in the early '60s when they were in a folk group, and he was dispensing pills to every everybody you know he had these relationships worked out with these chemists so he was uh, definitely uh, you know in over his head with drugs uh, from the from the onset but he was an incredible incredible musician and you know really underrated i think uh, and th- i think the the reason why he's underrated was he wasn't as prolific uh, as some of the others I, I really put him up there with Brian Wilson as far as as uh, the way he arranged songs i mean they both really you know Brian 
Brian was into the four freshmen, uh, you know, growing up and really kind of patterned his rock and roll after them. And, and similarly, John was into the high lows, which was another uh, singing quartet, uh, kind of jazzy from the, from the early to mid fifties. And, uh, they inspired his writing. Um, but like I said, John just wasn't as prolific. And so he doesn't get the, uh, get the same kind of accolades that uh, somebody like Brian Wilson gets. And one of the things I discovered that I didn't know is uh, his uh, piece of the action, if you will, with the uh, legendary Monterey Pop Festival. Um, talk about John Phillips as sort of a business person in that regard. He really was. You know, when he focused on something, uh, I mean, look out. Uh, he put his all into it, and that includes the Monterey Pop Festival. That was brought to him by a couple guys, uh, Alan Parasier and uh, a, a guy named Benjamin Shapiro. And uh, they had wanted to uh, put on – they had put on a show uh, in earlier in, in 1967, I think in the winter, like February or March, uh, to bail out uh, – to raise money to bail out the kids or, or – to pay for the defense of kids who were arrested during the Sunset Strip riots in Los Angeles uh, after the you know the curfews had been changed and there was a lot of rioting going on and gave us songs like uh, For What It's Worth by Buffalo Springfield. But um, so they wanted to do a larger one, like a, an outdoor festival in, in Monterey where the, the, there was a jazz festival like every other year or so. And uh, so they got it for two days and they, they didn't really have anybody. Uh, they wanted the Beatles and the Stones, but the Beatles had stopped touring and the Stones were in like, you know, uh, legal nightmares with their drug butts, so they couldn't even go anywhere if they wanted to. Uh, so uh, Derek Taylor, who uh, was a you know an, a, had moved, who was the Beatles publicist, had moved to Los Angeles and was working for the Birds, and he had suggested to them the Mamas and the Papas. They're the hottest thing going right now, and they're right in your backyard. So they approached John and through some cajoling, uh, got him on board, and then he saw the potential of it and really took it over and made it what the the Monterey Pop Festival that we know today, which is the the father of the rock festival uh, was really his idea. It was a not-for-profit uh, venture, and he had all cutting-edge artists. He, it wasn't like a Dick uh, Clark caravan of stars. It was, you know, they got a lot of those San Francisco groups like the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane, and then the, the two top British groups in that time, like the Who and the Jimi Hendrix Experience, and, you know, gave us, and Otis Redding, you know, and gave us just this incredible festival that we're still revering today. And he bought out one of the partners, ultimately, too, of the festival, didn't he? Yeah, Ben Shapiro. He uh, he was not uh, thrilled with the um, uh, not not uh, the nonprofit aspect. So he did a great thing, a smart thing. He held out, and they they just ended up buying him out for fifty grand. So he he walked out, he walked away with fifty thousand dollars in his pocket, and uh, they got what they wanted. Let's talk about the only uh, living member, uh, the beautiful Michelle Phillips. Yes, she was John's wife uh, from 1960 to 1969. They had met when John, or yeah, 1962, I'm sorry. Uh, they had met in uh, 1961 when John was in the Journeyman. It was his folk group that was on Capitol Records. And uh, they uh, went out to San Francisco to do a, a month stand at the Hungry Eye. Their management team was uh, located out there, so they went out to be closer to them and uh, really kind of stayed in that area. And Michelle was living there. She was a model. She was about 17 uh, and had moved up there from Los Angeles with her friend Tamar Hodel, and, uh, whose father, George Hodel, was a, a prime suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. And um, 
so they uh, they met them at the Hungry Eye, and uh, you know, uh, John uh, John, who was a habitual cheater on his wife at the time, uh, Susie, uh, just fell head over heels in love with her. So, and then you know, uh, and then they got married like a year or so later, and they started having marital troubles because Michelle had an affair, and I think John was reforming the the uh, new journeyman, and he wanted uh, Michelle a little closer to him, keep an eye on her. So he he brought her in, and she was also pretty, could sing a little bit, you know. And uh, but I really think uh, you know, their marriage is critical. I, I think if they hadn't gotten married, we wouldn't have the mamas and the papas. And you know, she went on; she didn't really go on to keep singing. She got a, became a, a, a an actress, appeared in a lot of movies, was in Falcon Crest in the eighties, and uh, you know has pretty much since retired. But uh, you know, uh, like I said, very maybe the greatest, one of the greatest songwriting muses in uh, in rock and roll history as Monday Monday and Go Where You Want to Go and I Saw Her Again and and uh, even California Dreaming were inspired by her. Did you attempt to reach out to her for the book? I did, yeah, I did. Uh, you know, she did not uh, return my requests. Uh, I know she's very proprietary uh, of that story, and you know, and rightly and understandably so. That's she's a big part of that story. Uh, so uh, you know, and when I approached her, I was not uh, signed to a, a publishing deal. I did not have an agent, so I was just some random guy, you know, who worked at the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM, and uh, you know, I can understand why she didn't. Uh, why she didn't return my my, my request, but uh, nonetheless, she she put out a you know an autobiography in 1986 uh, that really kind of detailed her time with the mamas and the papas. So I was able to glean a lot of her perspective from that. Let's talk about Denny Doherty. Denny uh, was. Uh, you know, talking about underrated, uh, Denny, I think, is one of the most underrated rock and roll voices. He had a great, great tenor, a great rock and roll tenor, more suited for rock and roll than folk music. He was in a folk band as well uh, that was signed to Epic Records, and they were called the Halifax Three. They were all from uh, Nova Scotia, Canada, and, uh, they, you know, they had some minor success, but they, he, he and John met on a, on a Hootenanny tour when John was with the Journeyman, and those two got very close they would like they both smoked uh, marijuana and uh, when the tour bus would come come to, to a rest stop they would go off in the bushes and and you know sneak a joint here and there and uh but it it, it drew them closer and they really had a, a a love for each other and even after it came to light that michelle and johnny had uh, D- michelle and denny had slept together uh they were able to find a place of healing and um and remain friends and they were friends uh through through the rest of, of So then let's talk about the great Cass Elliot. Well, she was definitely the superstar of the group, uh, you know, kind of the uh, kind of came out of nowhere. I think when you, when you look, you know, through the lens of history, she was, um, you know, she was, uh, you know, heavy set and uh, not traditionally uh, the, the traditional look of a female lead singer. But uh, she, boy, she had quite a voice, and uh, she had a, a personality to match. You know, I think in many ways she had that to try to make up for you know for her weight. You know, which and, you know in her mind was probably a bigger deal than it was to others. But you know, it was made. You know, it was 
made fun of a lot, you know, like she's, it's always brought up and you watch her on TV shows and interviews and stuff like that. But she was an incredible talent. Um, and, uh, she also was in a folk group of the big three and she had met, she had met Danny on tour as well. And she uh, fell in love with him. Uh, you know, he was a good looking guy and, uh, she was really into him, but, but it was unrequited love. Danny loved her as a friend, but he was not into her, uh, romantically. And that was another uh, thing that just really kind of gave the band its aura, you know, the the, the love between uh, or Michelle or Denny and and Cass, or the unrequited love. And uh, but you know, I, 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 over time, I think the behavior of all of them just kind of distanced her from them, and she was looking for a way out. And uh, you know, as the Mamas and the Papas uh, star began to fall, uh, hers as a solo. Uh, singer was was rising uh, because she was when they were on stage she was the spokesperson of the group she was the one who told the stories while the band was tuning their instruments you know and it, that she had done that with her time with the big three and um you know, she uh, was the breakout star when Dream a Little Dream of Me came out. It was credited to Mama Cass with the Mamas and the Papas. I think Dunhill Records saw the writing on the wall and wanted to move on with Cass. And uh, and they did. And she had a, a you know fairly successful solo career as a singer. It was probably not what they had hoped for. Uh, she didn't really have any smash number one successes. But, um, you know, she her personality was, was such that, uh, you know, she was on talk shows, a lot of talk shows. I mean, she did like Mike Douglas and Merv Griffin dozens of times. I believe she hosted Carson, filled in for him a couple of times when he was, you know, he was always taken off. So, um, so, and she was on his show a lot. So I, I think had she lived, uh, she uh, may have become a, a very successful talk show host. It's amazing that they, at least John Phillips, did not want her in the group. And it's also amazing that, uh, even in one of their songs, you know, the line, uh, no one's getting fat except Mama Cass. I mean, think about that in today's world. I, I know. It's, it's inconceivable, <laughs> you know. But, uh, and and the, the, the funny thing was that, you know, she, she was in on the joke, and she knew John. And I think to, her way of getting back at John, because they had a, a very tumultuous relationship, was to sing that line with as much vim and vigor as she could muster. And when you listen to it, she is really into that line, you know. And I think, the, you, know, it, it, you know, for us, it maybe kind of backfired on him, but it, uh, as, as for us, we benefited because it just it gives that song a little more pizzazz my understanding from talking to the great photographer Henry Diltz uh, who knew Mama Cass was that uh, she was an incredible sweetheart Oh, she was. I mean, you can just see it in the interviews that she gives. She's uh, she's very endearing, and I think that's one reason why she was uh, so successful in that realm is that people like to hear her talk and uh, like to you know it it. it um it drew people closer to her, and it's, uh, you know, you could fall in love with her personality very, very, very easily. And, you know, and, and for, for my taste, I mean, I don't, you know, I know she, she didn't think so, and maybe she, by, by other standards, I think she's an attractive woman, too. But, uh, you know, she, was, she just had a great look about her and a great personality to boot, you know, and uh, America fell in love. And unfortunately, not, not just America, but the world fell in love. And we lost her way too early, for, uh, you know, at the age of 32 years old. 
And then there was this moment with the band that uh, I did not know about. The uh, moment where the band um, kicked out Michelle Phillips uh, for the affair that she was having with Gene Clark uh, of the Birds. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think once the dust settled for from Denny and um, uh, Michelle's uh, fling, you know, Michelle stayed in the house where uh, that John, she and John had rented shortly after that came to light, and then, but John moved out and and moved in with Denny, and then she, you know, she began this uh, affair with Gene Clark, who she met through a mutual friend, and uh, I think once that came to light, it was it was too much for John. It's just like I can't deal with this. I, if you want, I think he told uh, Denny and Mama Cass that uh, it's either me or her. You know, and and they couldn't afford to lose John. Uh, they could afford to lose uh, Michelle, or so they thought. You know, uh, because John was the he was the prince. Without John, there is no mamas and papas, which is why he's really kind of a focal point of this book. Uh, you know, it's kind of like the Beach Boys. You write a book on the Beach Boys, it's, it's going to be a lot of focus on Brian Wilson. So, um, so they did the, the you know. John fired her uh, after a, a concert where Gene Clark was in attendance and uh, John noticed and um, he fired her in the parking lot and a few days later they sent her a formal letter and uh, you know uh, it, it was uh, the summer of 1966 so it lasted for about two months and they brought in Joe Gibson who was Lou Adler's girlfriend at the time she had been uh, the girlfriend of, of Jan Barry of Jan and Dean uh, and they had broken up shortly before he had his car wrecked at uh, you know, gave him uh, resulted in some brain damage. Uh, but uh, you know, she was a tall, another pretty blonde. She was a former model. She was very musical. She had written songs and worked in the studio with Jan and Dean, and had recorded a single herself. So she was kind of a natural replacement. But the thing was, you know, the, the mamas and the papas was a shared experience between four people, and I think it came to light uh, during uh, that time period, and that Jill, you know, there was it was she. Michelle was just wasn't a cog you could take out and replace. You know, she had been with them through thick and thin. Uh, they were together in New York. They were together at the Virgin Islands. They all. She was with them when they moved out, back out to California and got signed to Dunhill. And they just couldn't replace that. And, you know, she had an edge to her that uh, Jill didn't have. So uh, he eventually brought her back in right there at the end of summer and uh, just resumed as normal. And it actually kind of kicked off a bit of a renaissance in John and Michelle's marriage. They bought that house in Bel Air and uh, lived, uh, you know, as, as normally as they could for a little while. But then, you know, bad behaviors uh, crept, made their way back in and they eventually divorced. What was your conversation with uh, Jill Gibson uh, like for the book? It was very, uh, very introspective. She's a, a very deep person. She's an artist. You know, we communicated uh, via email. And she would always reply uh, in a very timely manner, and with always with great depth. She told me a great the great story of them meeting the Beatles. She was with them when they went to London in 1966 in the summer there, and um, really gave me a firsthand account of not only meeting the Beatles but several members of the Rolling Stones, and uh, just uh, and it's all detailed in the book. Uh, people can uh, will enjoy, and, and I, if you're a Beatles fan or a Rolling Stones fan, you'll you'll certainly enjoy. Uh, the mamas and the papas shared experience with them. So do you ever think about the parallels of this band for a band that would uh, 
eventually uh, mature in some way and have its own legacy. The comparison between the mamas and the papas and the various affairs and Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. You know, it's funny. I didn't even really think of that writing it. And I'm a big Fleetwood Mac fan, so it's like, uh, you know, but it's like, yeah, they were kind of Fleetwood Mac before Fleetwood Mac, you know, and it was it was complicated. But, uh, you know, uh, I know there's a, a miniseries out there based on the, the life of uh, the, 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 the uh, tumultuous relationship of the, the, the most famous incarnation of Fleetwood Mac, because there were several, uh, you know, with uh, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks, and uh, I, you know the movie, the book. My book has already been optioned for a movie or a limited edition series, and uh, I really think uh, the story of the Mamas and the Papas could be a great limited edition series, right, right there with Daisy Jones and the Six, because uh, it it writes itself, and uh, there's a cliffhanger there already built in for every episode. But you know, it was the same thing, you know, just affairs and broken hearts and jealousies and. Um, it was it was there before the Fleet, before Fleetwood Mac even uh, brought it to another level. It's a three ring circus. It was what it was, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. You know, and the three principles being uh, well, actually, yeah, I guess you could say John is in there, but uh, definitely Denny, Michelle, and Cass. <laughs> yeah. So, if you were their manager during that period, what would you have tried to do to steer the course? Ah, boy, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's tough because, you know, we talk about the Monterey Pop Festival, uh, how that really changed music. It was, it brought it, it really kind of gave us what we now refer to as classic rock because that was right after that was the, 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 all those San Francisco groups really started to hit and albums became a, a, a bigger thing than singles. And, uh, you had power trios like cream and the Jimi Hendrix experience and the mamas and the papas struggled to find a, a footing in that. And that's the very thing that they had created, you know, harmony groups didn't do too well. Um, in, in the post Monterey world, you think of the beach boys and the four seasons and the mamas and the papas. And, you know, you eventually had this oldies revival that you know the mamas and or the the beach boys and the four seasons were able to kind of get back uh get their footing back and really re rejuvenate their careers but the mamas and the papas just couldn't do that so i mean i, I guess if, if i would have in that era i would have to get to work and just try to figure out how to make this four piece tree uh, four piece uh, quartet uh the sings harmony uh, relevant in this age and that's 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 a tough that was a t would would have been a tough order, and we see it. We you know, the Mamas and the Papas, their fourth album, the Papas and the Mamas, not not the greatest title in the world. Um, it was a good album, and it came out right there in 1968 during that time. But it's not very memorable, you know. There's no no real super standout tracks. There's good tracks on it. There's fan favorites for sure, but uh, nothing like what had come before it, like Creaky Alley or California Dreaming or I Saw Her Again. So I think if I were there, uh, I think if I I were their manager. I don't know if I would have done, been uh, any better than Lou Adler or, or whoever else came in, Bobby Roberts and all those other guys who came in. But I would just definitely say we got to focus on finding our footing here and how we're going to uh, stay relevant in this era. Might have been a visit to an addiction counselor, possibly too. <laughs> I I don't know. And remember that that time and period, it was hip to be on drugs.
<laughs> True. <laughs> well, Scott, congratulations on all the leaves of brown, how the mamas and the papas came together and broke apart. Uh, your new book on Backbeat and uh, congratulations on it and thank you for being on Taking a Walk. Well, thank you, Buzz. I really appreciate you having me on and uh, it just if listeners uh, want to uh, you know, learn, uh, buy the book, it's, uh, you can go to my website, scottsheaauthor.com. Shea is spelled S-H-E-A and we'll give you links to Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, Books A Million and the audio book just dropped the other day. So if, you, if that's your preferred method of getting through a book, uh, you can pick that up as well. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.